0: Hello, and welcome back to Radio Rothbard. This is Ryan McMake, and I'm a senior editor at uh, the Mises Institute. And with me is my associate editor, Tho Bishop. And we're here to talk about populism. And specifically, why did Murray Rothbard support populism? As he fairly clearly did in several of his essays, especially those about uh the late 19th century, and the progressive era. So we'll look a little bit about that. And uh, is there some value then to encouraging more democratic participation from the public, which is essentially what populism is, and this idea that the voting public can be a check on the power of the state. So welcome, Tho. Glad to be back with you, Ryan. The uh, election is almost upon us. And we've been talking about democracy-type stuff for past couple of weeks. And we're, we're going to talk about it at least one more time. I, I think maybe next Wednesday, we could just talk about the election after, <laughs> if we even know who won it.
1: it. might be recording from a from a bunker as the Civil War is playing out uh, in real time all around us. Uh, <laughs> we'll see how it goes.
0: Yes, I'm thankful I don't live in some big northeastern city or anything like that. And uh, But in the lead up, Let's talk about, well, is it a good thing to encourage people to vote? Should we just assume, as uh, it seems to be the media's assumption, that the more people vote, the more you move in the direction of social democracy and more welfare and uh, more of the agenda that the modern Democratic Party wants? That may or may not be actually empirically true, but let's look at it a little bit. But first, the issue is the theory behind it. And as you know, at uh, the Mises Institute, we hear a lot from readers who take the anti-majoritarian view on this. And this goes back to Madison, this whole idea that we need to control the majority and that countries self-destruct when there's too much majority participation in the political process. And Madison had this whole idea that if you had a large republic with a lot of different regions and states and groups of people, that these groups would cancel each other out and that this would act as a check upon majoritarian power. And so his primary concern was to control. The power of majorities. And this a lot of this is in Federalist number 10, which I've had to read many times because it's a foundational text in any introductory political science class, which I taught for eight or nine years. And he just talks about that in detail and in other places where, well, our real problem is in making sure that the the public with its licentiousness doesn't take over the political system. But was that theory right? Interestingly, in his new book on secession, F.H. Buckley uh, has a little section on that, and he talks about how, well, in the 18th century, sure, Madison was probably right. Madison had this idea that you couldn't, at the national level, create any really unified, large interest groups. It was too hard to mobilize in the 18th century. The the communication didn't allow for it. But Buckley suggests that in the modern era, technology does allow— For interest groups to come together and essentially take over the political system. And so Buckley compares this uh, to the views of Jefferson and George Mason and Roger Sherman, who took more of a decentralized view and thought the states should really dominate the political system and that the real danger wasn't in uh, too much democratic participation offering at the local level some sort of. Uh, takeover and diminishment of minority rights. He thought that the real problem was that this big federal government that Madison wanted would actually concentrate power and ultimately allow for large, untouchable interest groups to actually take over. So they were more concerned with what Buckley calls minoritarian misbehavior, this idea that the real threat came from, from small, powerful minorities that could end up manipulating the political system to their benefit. And I, I, Buckley makes the case that I think that uh, Mason was right, that Jefferson was right, that if we look around us, we see that the real problem isn't that at the state or local level that majorities are all trampling the rights of the minorities. It seems that really what's destabilizing the U.S. and causing serious problems and causing us to go bankrupt and so on are these small groups of uh, different interests that have outsized power at the federal government and that it's really the reverse of what Madison said, that it's not this majority-induced uh, licentiousness, which is just a word they keep using, um, that, that, well, we all just became lazy and we're all just voting and handing power to, uh, to ourselves to the federal government no, it's much more organized than that. It's certain groups that are really exercising power. But how does that manifest itself in the modern world today, though?
1: I remember working with the House Financial Services Committee, uh, uh, Barney Frank, actually, who, who I learned a lot from. He was wrong on just about every single issue, but he was just, a, you know, his, his mannerisms and his, the way they could control a room was always very interesting. And one of the things that he pointed out is that, you know, when we think about who controls Congress, are you know, some of the most powerful interest groups? You know, you, you, the first thing that comes to mind is kind of like you know, shady bankers and Wall Street and all sorts of stuff. And they, they certainly they tend to, to work out and, and have all sorts of, uh, you know, they, they very rarely lose a legislative battle. Uh, but one of the most powerful groups is uh, real estate agents and and people in the you know, housing market. And you have, you know, because every single congressional district has members of you know, a real you know you have real estate packs. You have you have uh, lenders, uh, community lenders, and things like that that all have a vested interest in there. They they're able to speak to their congressman directly. You know that industry is a very small industry relative to the rest of uh, the American economy, but it's a very powerful one. And you see, you know, the amount of policies that were baked into you know that's one of the big big issues leading into t- two thousand eight. There was such a major bias towards. Uh, the you know home buyers, um, that you know it created you know f- helped fuel these policies that led to the housing bubble and, and many of these you know, still exist today, and um, so again that's that's one way of of you know kind of you know a, a very uh, powerful small focused interest group uh, can have a tremendous amount of power. I mean we see that I think uh, the foreign policy is a major thing as well. I mean. War is typically unpopular. Um, you know, outside of you know, 9/11, you know, you had that big rush of patriotic fervor, and and you know, you could pretty much have gone to war with anyone at that point. Um, you know, but over time, right? You know, the, the uh, Afghanistan war, Iraq war have been unpopular for a very very long time. We're still there, um, and one of the you know, one of the most effective lobbying outfits in uh, Washington D.C. are various weapons manufacturers. Um, you know, if, again, it's always uh, Daniel McAdams, the Ron Paul Institute. You know, he makes this point all the time, and it, it's it's a great one. Again, if you look at you know who's funding a lot of these you know serious military think tanks on foreign policy, I mean, it's you know, it is people who build the bombs, and so they're very happy when things go boom. Um, you know, and, and then you have you know I mean, in, in terms of, of interest groups that have a lot of power in you know, focusing on, on where these things go. I mean, you know, obviously, uh, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of Americans, uh, you know, major funders of, of both parties, uh, are very interested in, in uh, you know, the protection of Israel. Um, so that's you know always a topic that uh, you know is has shaped American foreign policy for, for several decades. Um, so again, all these things is you know you, you see very clearly play out that um, and, and now another one where you look at the way the electoral map plays out. Um, you know Iowa farmers and ethanol. You know the, the advantage of having the first uh, first primary, you know, nobody wants to you know, tick off Iowa if you have any sort of presidential ambitions. you have got a very strong built-in thing there, and so so the interest of these small minority groups are able to uh, dictate policy for you know, the federal government in ways that have profound ramifications for you know, day-to-day lives. In spite of the fact that you know isolated, um, these issues are either not driving focuses of American voters, or they're not, or, or they're explicitly unpopular. This is the case of war.
0: Right. I think that's an interesting phenomenon that doesn't ex- get explored very often, at least not explicitly, is this fact that so many of the issues that are driving Washington politics, it seems, are not the issues that the voters seem particularly interested in, whether like central banking, right? With the exception of the Ron Paul period, it didn't seem that uh, that anybody ever mentions the central bank or its policies. It's become more high profile lately. But historically, nobody has talked about that, except in, if you go back to the 19th century. And then, of course, foreign policy as well. The, uh, polls have been done showing that there is this huge divide between what the public wants in terms of foreign policy and what the public actually gets and so that would certainly suggest your thesis there that there's a lot going on uh, that are mostly really just between small interest groups and the people who are running Washington and and that a lot of, and that the the general voting public seems to be excluded from that. The power
1: seems these lobbyists kind of file in, you know, you, you have regulars and that that you know they have the same seat, they've got the routine down and again it's, it's not normally the obvious Suspects, right? Like it's 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 you know it works on so many different levels, and you know it it becomes so baked in. It's it's because they are they're able to establish themselves. There's so many of these. The way that they're able to um, you know you you, they build these institutions that build that help sell their own credibility, right? And so you know you have this trickle down of certain special interest groups build up certain research centers. The research centers support the interest groups. And you know how dare you question the expert class? Because oh well, they know what they're talking about. And you know that this is one of those things that you know when you have a bunch, you know, when you have a something like the federal government that has so much authority, so much power, and so much individual decision making on votes. There's there's you know you don't have people qualified to make these decisions, and so they they effectively you know trade you know sell off their you know their decision making process to you know whatever expert or or an interest group that uh, they've become either uh, emotionally or financially tied to. And that's that's the way the sausage is made.
0: So contrary to this belief among many, uh, especially conservative Americans today, it was uh, there was never this unity among the founding fathers who all agreed upon what the narrative should be and that everybody agreed with Madison. Of course, there was... Uh, immense opposition to the Madisonian narrative, this idea that uh, we need to control democratic participation, and that the real danger lies at the state and local level, and that the federal government will simply cancel out, this this large republic will just cancel out all interests at that level. And in fact, this was a long-lasting narrative that was very powerful throughout the 19th century. And this really brings us, I think, to the Rothbard question, is Why did Rothbard support populism? And I think if we look at Rothbard's writing in the Progressive Era, and also his writing uh, from the various volumes of Conceived in Liberty, we can see fairly clearly that Rothbard didn't agree with uh, the Madison narrative, that he he clearly was more on the side of the Jeffersonians, and that he continued to to agree with the narrative that proceeded through the 19th century. And this was something that, excuse me, that was handed down throughout the the 19th century through uh, Samuel Tilden, who was the party leader throughout the mid 19th century and won in uh, 1876, or rather the late mid 19th century, and also then through the Cleveland Democrats, but also, of course, through the Jacksonians who were in power in uh, the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. Now, what was this narrative? And we we can find this, uh, interestingly, in a book called The Transatlantic Persuasion by Robert Kelly. Now, this is a book I stumbled upon because uh, David Gordon mentions it in a footnote. And otherwise, it's it's just undiscussed. And it's it's a book from the 60s, now out of print. But as you read it, and you can see what is this ideological narrative that so many uh, American Democrats, but also... Uh, liberal, as in classical liberal Brits and Canadians subscribe to also, we find a narrative that starts to look very familiar if we're familiar with Rothbard's thinking on this matter. And basically what uh, Kelly how Kelly describes it, and which is also described in an earlier book called the Jacksonian Persuasion, interestingly, is that it goes like this that uh, the republic was created, and it was a lot of hardworking, independent-minded people in uh, towns and villages and on farms. And however, at the same time, there existed in the cities this uh, financial uber-class, if you will, the wealthy, the very powerful, the people who wanted a central bank. And these people have been conspiring for decades to destroy the virtues and the foundations of the American republic. And he talks about how Samuel Tilden, who became an important theorist on this issue, uh, had uh, had learned this basically at his grandpa's knee, that the family, it was a long-standing Democrat family, and uh, that uh, that he would hear these stories about how the this small number of wealthy people were trying to destroy America and take over the political system, especially at the national level. And so this is how uh, Kelly phrases it, quote, Tilden was told over and over again of the Revolution and the War of eighteen twelve and of the dramatic days of the early Republic when Hamilton and Jefferson had founded the two parties. He absorbed an exciting sense of the immediacy of these controversies. Now, Hamilton was the bad guy in this story, and Jefferson was the good guy <laughs> and This went on to uh to really go on to other bad guys who were usually the the American Whigs and anyone who opposed. Uh, American Democratic Party's uh, proposals of small government, laissez-faire, local control, those sorts of things, and also its opposition to the central bank. And this expanded uh, beyond the borders of the U.S. Uh, Kelly talks about how Martin Van Buren later, uh, when he was ex-president, he was in England, and he was there when uh, the Chartist movement in England of working-class male uh, voters uh, wanted to seize more voting power in England, and Van Buren thought this was a good thing, and the and the Democrats in America cheered this. So there was a camaraderie, what Kelly calls a cousinship, between the American Democrats and the radicals and the Peelites in England. The radicals including people like John Bright and Richard Cobden, who uh, were basically the hardcore laissez-faire liberals of the nineteenth century. So this is an identifiable movement that Rothbard was well aware of and could see the benefit of. And what he saw was a connection here between the expansion of the vote in England and the U.S. and a greater devotion to laissez-faire, greater opposition to central banking. It was opposition to a high tariff in a lot of cases. And so you could see how he would conclude, we have at least one major example of expanding uh, the franchise and of people taking the hard money anti-central bank low tax position and this this continued into the late 19th century it continued uh, with Cleveland who won people forget Cleveland won the popular vote three times in a row and uh, even though he lost the presidency in his middle race and uh, people forget that they they forget that the pro- gold, Uh, position was very popular. The low tax position was very popular. The local control position was very popular. And this is not some alien idea. We hear a lot of modern day uh, conservatives and libertarians claim, oh, yeah, laissez faire has never been popular. It's never been a mass movement. Uh, Bannon, right? Steve Bannon says things like, oh, that sort of thing's never been popular, except among uh, a tiny number of overeducated libertarian intellectuals. Of course, this is a completely false statement. The laissez faire position has been very popular. Uh, in different historical times and places, and not just in the U.S., but also in much of the the Anglo world, and even in France, where it never really gained a majority, but was a significant uh, part of the political milieu there. And so this is a, a thing that existed and which Rothbard found to be very delightful in many ways. He has an essay in the Progressive Era called The the Democratic Triumph of 1892, which really looks at just how much the Democrats managed to push this laissez-faire position. Unfortunately, a lot of those unraveled with the panic of 1893 that cut a lot of Cleveland's power at that time. Uh, But uh, he has noted in the past, Rothbard does in speeches and essays, that Laissez faire liberalism has been a popular movement and has been very popular. And so to just assume that the voters would always necessarily reject laissez faire uh, is not uh, historically accurate. A lot of it probably depends on the ideology and what people learn in school. And since everyone now learns in school that socialism is the better ideology, we shouldn't be surprised that a lot of voters happen to agree with that view. But we see I think maybe continuing today some elements of that in a lot of modern politics. The question is, can it ever progress to the point uh, where it's a very popular uh, system again within the U.S. and could maybe actually start to really win some elections uh, as a laissez-faire party? That's an open question and something that uh, would require a longer-term view but have you seen any signs of resurgence, or at least who are, what's the coalition that still somewhat keeps this torch alive?
1: A lot of Ron Paul's success was, I think, built on this sort of populist approach to libertarian politics, uh, in, a, in particular on the Fed issue. Right? Because I mean, this populism at its core is, you know, elites are screwing over the, the working class guy. And, um, you know, typically, the, the uh, prescription by a lot, you know, you, you can very often see populism be used as a way of, of giving away, you know, tearing down big big companies and then giving away the, the you know, state treasury to the people, whatever. But you know, it, Ron Paul, his argument was that look, the central bankers are screwing us over. They're, they're you know, inflation is a sinister tax, and the best way of protecting our savings is to abolish the Fed and return to sound money. And I, I, there's, there's a wonderful, uh, you know, when you can tap into obvious frustrations that exist, um, you know, I, that there's something there, that, that emotional appeal is, you know, it works in a way that, you know, you're, if you're not going to get someone to read a you know, human action, if you can simply convince them that, look, it's the state that is the gang of threes, thieves writ large, that, you know, they're the ones plundering the countryside. And so we need to step up and stop them. Um, you know that is a very powerful emotional play, and that's so. When Rothbard, for example, in the '90s, you know when he's evaluating the you know the, the coalition with, with Pat Buchanan and things like this, um, you know he, he, he's looking. You know he, for his his article uh, "A Strategy for the Right" is one of my favorite political uh, essays of his, and then he starts to, like talking about the, the New Deal and and all that, um, but. You know, so and, and what's interesting is that you know '90s politics became very relative again within kind of the Trump era because there's you know, Trump in many ways was kind of a Buchanan-like figure, um, and leading up to that, I mean, the Tea Party itself was a very populist movement, right? Was, you know, hey, look, these people are spending everything away. You know, the uh, Obamacare is a you know massive socialist takeover of medicine. Saying so, you know, something. You know, claims might have, and, and, and unfortunately, the, the Tea Party was a complete failure because once you elected a new group of Republican officials, they very quickly became in the pocket of, of the establishment. You know, John Boehner and uh, you know, Paul Ryan, you know, were, you know, were being portrayed as, as you know, revolutionary figures. Paul Ryan, in particular, was being sold as, oh, this is a wonder kid that's going to solve the Tea Party's problems and not quite work out. Um, but again, that was another example of, in recent history of this growing, hey, government screwing us over. And, and again, I think that's, that is directly kind of fueled a lot of the Trump rise currently. And now, I mean, obviously, I mean, Trump is, is not a libertarian by any means. Um, there's plenty of, of anti-laissez-faire economic policy that he has promoted. Um, but the, the idea of hey, you have certain progressively entrenched powers, um, you know, again, things like the corporate press, things like um, you know what we're seeing in higher education, things like, you know, D.C. experts and, and these very same uh, entrenched interests that we were talking about uh, earlier, you know, if, if you see Trump as a middle finger than that, um, then it's, it's precise the fact that you have this resentment to these elites that I think you have, you, know, you, you have some people that are willing to, to overlook some of the, the uh, libertarian blemishes on <laughs> the very anti-libertarian policies because they're so emotionally invested, on, on you know, sticking it to these people. And so if libertarians, you know, that, that's what Rothbard was, was trying to highlight is that, you know, if libertarians can capture on that emotional appeal, then that's a political strategy within a democratic system that could be very powerful. And, and in fact, I, I think one of the things that, you know, uh, he's trying to, to like, you know, Mises himself when he's when he talks about the marketplace, I and mean, he talks about mass consumption and all sorts of, you know, he, he, he makes a point that, oh, well, you know, mass-consumed mass go- goods, you know, you're going to get a lot of you know, trashy detective novels and things like that. You're not going to get the finer things. Um, well, in, in, poli- in politics, but you know, but it, it appeals to the masses. Well, in politics, unlike the market, you only get one good at the end, right? You know, there's, there's a, a sole winner in an election. Um, so within that, you have to be able to package your ideology. You have to be able to package your message in a way that appeals to the masses as much as possible. And so, a way instead of so that that emotional appeal of hey, look, these are the people that are screwing us over. Um, we've got the the answers to fix this. You know, we we want to restore merit rather than nepotism and privilege. Um, that is something that uh, you know, I think is a very powerful message for you know those ad, those advocating uh, laissez faire.
0: Yes, building on your comment about how you have to package things, right? So much of American electoral history is about the parties forming these coalitions that they hope will lead to some sort of enduring victory election after election. And of course, that changes over time as ideologies change, as the economic and political realities in different states change, as the regions change. And we can see this then in uh, Rothbard's discussion of the Cleveland Democrats and of uh, the third party system. Now, for non-political scientists, the United States has gone through a variety of uh, party systems. And this is uh, a system that is based upon uh, what? how did the different interest groups align within the two parties? And then how successful was each party at gaining essentially the electoral votes from each state uh, over that time period? And the U.S. is currently uh, allegedly in the sixth party system. And in Cleveland's time, it was in the third party system. But a big change, the end of laissez-faire as a dominant force essentially ended with the end of the third party system. And so Cleveland was the the final days of that. And then the Democratic Party moved away from laissez-faire as it embraced uh, free coinage of silver. And it was taken over by a different sort of populist, uh, that run by William Jennings Bryan uh, who of course went on to lose the the election in 1896. But he essentially turned the Democratic Party away from what had long been uh, its, its good, solid, hard money position, which also meant that the Democratic Party was the good, low-spending fiscal responsibility party, which had been popular uh, for a long time. But after that then, the Republican Party started to realign itself. It realized that the the whole uh, prohibitionist thing, the moralism, the pietistic stuff, of uh, t- talking down to all of the new immigrants and the German Catholics and the Catholics in general, as for their wrong religion and their immoral behavior, and for it, it was very much the Republicans used to talk to Americans very much the way Democrats talk to Americans now. It's uh, they they might have called uh, new immigrants and catholics and and rural farmers deplorables back in uh, 1892 if they thought of it and, but they realized that wasn't a winning thing, so they started then promising all of these groups, oh, well, actually, the tariff benefits you, so we'll raise the tariff and it'll help working men. Before then, the working men didn't fall for it. They recognized that the tariff only helped people who worked in those specific protected industries, and they knew that the tariff actually ended up hurting most people, especially small business owners, which back then was a very large percentage of the population. Uh, but the Republicans figured out, well, we can kind of triangulate around the Democrats and we'll we'll abandon the whole moralistic stuff and uh, we'll promise protectionism as a means of getting rich and, uh, look, uh, free coinage, uh, fine, whatever. We'll, we'll have a lot of big spending and we'll help you out and we'll, we'll throw fiscal responsibility out the window and uh, inflationism. Look, it works for you. That's fine. And that actually worked for the Republicans in the Fourth Party system right up until the Great Depression. And so the question is, then, is uh, what's the alignment now? I, I'm, I'm starting to think that maybe we're on the cusp of a new party system forming. The, the old coalition maybe is breaking down because of Trumpism, which I don't think Trumpism is going away, uh, even if Trump goes away. And there could be some new system coming out of this. Uh, what do you think?
1: There's so much up in the air in terms of party leadership, I think, in the near future. I mean, Joe Biden is, you know, on the Democratic side, the, the, the election of Joe Biden was a kind of a, a pushback towards the uh, energy that you saw from like the genuine left, um, you know, the, the proudly Democratic Socialist left uh, in America trying to, to take over the Democratic Party. Um, but again, I mean, Joe Biden, even if Joe Biden ends up winning next this election, I mean, he's he is not the future of the Democratic Party, um, no matter how much, uh, you know, I know that there's a, a lot of, uh, you know, you have a lot of former Bush people and the, the Lincoln Project trying to uh, uh, you looking at potentially having a, a role there in the future. I, I'm not sure that's really going to play out in sitting where the energy of the party is. On the Republican side, you know, if Trump wins, then I think that's you know definitely a, a strong stamp. Um, you know, there, there's no way the Republican Party is ever going to. I think you see a true kind of Bush revival there, whereas if it's, if it's a landslide, a humiliating defeat, um, you're going to have a lot of the old school establishment take the reins and play, you know, I told you so, in spite of the fact that, you know, of, of uh, their, their record of inadequacy prior to Trump. And, and the other thing is that, I mean, Trump really isn't, you know, for all of his rhetoric, I mean, he's, he's, there's, there's not much ideological meat there. Within the TREP orbit, you've had various different sort of coalitions kind of playing against each other. Um, and so, so that's that has its own sort of, of you, know, uh, um, you know, it's, it's going to be difficult to see who, who ends up winning those, those intertribal battles there. If you're looking at larger trends, though, I think one of the things that's, that's been very interesting, there's a, a study that came out a couple of years ago um, called the, the Hidden Tribes of America um, that kind of looked at, uh, issues like the like political correctness um, looked at kind of how people beyond kind of a pure, you know, what are your opinion on tax policy, and things like that kind of way, you know, kind of cultural trends and various different demographics. And so like one of the big concerns that you've gotten from like, the really nativist right, right, is, has been like, oh, well, increasing Hispanic populations is going to significantly move America to the left. Um, and this is why, you know, they, they've used that as a, a, you know, one of the go-to justifications for restricting immigration control, restricting immigration. Well, I mean, it, it, if you look at some of the cultural, uh, the, again, you know, the, the biggest, the most liberal leftist coalition within America are white college-educated voters. In um, particular, the, the more college education you have, you know, you're, those, those postgraduate degrees, that trends to the left and, and sometimes the, the very far left. Um, and, so, and that kind of plays into some of the, the urban versus rural divides, right, that we've seen play out. I, I, when, when we had the, the gun protests in Virginia, I looked into, um, yeah, I wrote an article about how, you know, what we're seeing in Virginia is going play, playing out in other states. Because one of the things that's, that's made, that's completely changed Virginia from being one of the reddest areas of the country to being, I, mean, I think now effectively uh, you know it's, it's not a purple state anymore, it's a solid blue state. Uh, Virginia is one of the 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 growth of college degrees and postgraduate degrees, like Virginia is one of the leading states uh, uh in the growth there in the last uh 20 years. And I, I think those you know part of that has to do with the economy in, in North Virginia and its connection to DC and all that, but I I think that, that um you know that's had a major impact there. And so if uh, I, I think that what you could end up seeing is a right that is defined perhaps less by uh doctrinaire you know uh, traditional conservative policy views as much as a you know that this kind of trumpian anti-political correctness uh, anti uh, uh you know you know, making fun of the, the Latinx sort of designation from the left um you know this this you know, the, the more of these cultural issues pushing back towards uh, of, of kind of a, a reaction towards the, the uh, aggressive nature of kind of this progressive uh, uh, leftism of modern universities. And you know, you, even though that you know, Trump's only, you know, has, has really been that four-year term here, the changing in voter behavior is quite significant. You've seen You know the the blue collar union hall workers, um, yeah, moved from being historically Democratic voters to being Republican voters. This was the major narrative that changed the Rust Belt in 2016. Um, You know when you look at people that even even those that think that Trump is very far behind in Rust Belt states, one of the measures they look for in terms of his performance is you know what is the voter turnout look like in again these historically blue collar areas. Um, you know, they look at the divide between you know, non-college-educated versus college-educated white voters and some of the differences there. Um, and, and again, what's, what's really, really fascinating is that what's playing out right now is the change in just four years of the Hispanic vote um, in a, in a surprise, you know, strong Trump showing. Uh, 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 you know, Ron DeSantis in Florida, for example, 2018 uh, this, the Republican Party had tremendous success because of Cuban voters turning out in a big, big way. That's playing over with Trump now. Um, you know, There's a New York Times poll this week that showed Trump winning with Hispanic uh, male voters. Um, and I, again, I, I don't think that this is a direct result of any major new change in policy per se. I think it is a culturally driven sort of narrative that you know, if you're a, uh, a very masculine you know, macho male, there's, there's things that some of the left has prioritized that might be turning your, you off. And so that, again, like the, the calculation there is, it's, I think, less about, you know, a specific policy platform as, as much more of these kind of hidden, you know, these, these underlying cultural dynamics um, that, again, you know, just where we're seeing the polarization of American, you know, the difference between that urban and rural really play out in a way that is completely changing your typical go-to uh, voter in both major parties. And how again, how that ends up continuing in a post-Trump world is going to be very interesting to watch. But it is it's certainly true that the hardcore bases have changed dramatically in just a very short period of time.
0: Yeah, it's, it's good that you mentioned the, uh, the lack of ideological content here, right? Uh, Rothbard notes that after the third party system, that the party systems became pretty much non-ideological in the sense that there was a coherent ideology driving the, the Democrats' worldview uh, throughout the 19th century. But that that ends then with that party system where it becomes more of just a, a system of cobbling together coalitions that can get you to win elections. And many Americans perhaps think that uh, this is a new thing where we talk all the time about, well, which state is in play this election? And uh, candidate A needs to make sure and win these states, which are the uh, the in-between states. And so on, but that's always been the case. And that was, for example, the reason Cleveland lost in 1888 was New York was very much in play in that period, even though that was Cleveland's home state, and he lost it by one percent margin in 1888, and subsequently lost the election, uh, even though he he won the popular vote. And that's that's the what you try to do as a candidate. You got to put some states in play, maybe that weren't in play before. And I think that was Trump's. Uh, genius, if you want to call it that, or just as good luck, perhaps, in 2016, was putting the old Rust Belt, the upper Midwest in play in a way that nobody thought would happen. Wisconsin, Michigan, and so on. Everyone assumed the South would go to him and so on. Uh, But those states, Pennsylvania as well, he actually managed to win those. And that's just the typical example of what you need to do in a presidential election. You got to hammer out some states that were maybe unexpected. Turn the purple states. The purple states have always existed. Uh, New York was a purple state in 1888, right? And so they they they've managed to hammer that out now in a certain way. But is it what's the ideological content there? And that's that's what I'm looking at right now. As you note, know, right, there's definitely a culture war element to the Trump coalition. Uh, the question is, does that translate into actual policy, right? We can, obviously, Trump isn't the anti-tariff guy, uh, but maybe he is the overall low-tax guy. Obviously, the tax equation is very different now than it was in the 1880s because they didn't have an income tax then. And so maybe you can be pro-tariff, but still be the low-federal tax guy. And maybe that is a big element then of the Trump coalition. But what about on some of these other issues? I mean, Obviously, Trump isn't the anti-Central Bank uh, candidate. How does that translate into policy? So, yeah, it seems like there's a lot of impressions, a lot of uh, emotional elements to the coalition. But it's unclear over time if that will translate into specific policy prescriptions beyond just simply uh, not letting tax rates go up or maybe some level of deregulation. What about some of those larger issues that existed? I don't know. It's it's still so unclear how that might happen, but yeah, so much so much of it's just going to come down to which states can we get to vote in the majority of this particular coalition, and if things really do dramatically change, then yeah, maybe we are entering then um, a seventh party system. I don't I don't know <laughs> how that's how that's going to turn out, but it does seem that things are a little bit different with this whole issue around the white working class. And not even just the Anglo working class, Anglo white, because as you mentioned, right, Hispanics are an important factor here. And not just Cuban Hispanics, right? We've long known that they're different, that they're more conservative because of uh, their, in many cases, refugees from Cuba and they're very anti-communist and and so on. But I come from the Mexican type of Hispanic out in the Southwest, and that's half my family and uh, talking— to my mother's side about that, there's not a whole lot of support for uh, these uh, graduate-educated Anglo-Saxons that are constantly talking down to us and and telling us about how we should use the word Latinx now, which, of course, 99.9% of uh, Mexican-Americans think is idiotic. And so that whole issue there perhaps is creating a rift. And I've said in, in columns in the past that today's Hispanic Americans are really just uh, the the white Americans of the future, right? Like we used to refer to Italians as basically uh, just subhuman in this country. And now they're considered part of the oppressor class. And I think Hispanics are going in that direction also in spite of what some anti-immigrant conservatives may think Uh, which is why you probably should stop trash-talking Hispanics uh, if you want to actually build a working coalition in the future. But so much is up in the air. But I think uh, Rothbard was right in that the libertarian side, or rather the populist side of the right, was always the most interesting part. And this kind of brings us to the last issue here, is uh, the the conservative movement in general always had this this populist issue. This was the anti-New Deal. This was... The the part of that coalition that opposed um, the limousine liberal, we used to call them, and which has pretty much taken over the party now as they've abandoned the union part of the party. And I suppose maybe we called them the Reagan Democrats in the 80s. This was really the leave me alone, uh, I love America, sort of culturally conservative part of the party, which was very distinct from the Buckleyite wing of the party, which was very much this Ivy League, uh, where we're too refined and and too civilized to engage in any sort of this populist stuff. And I noticed you had tweeted about that, saying that maybe the right has moved away from the Buckleyite side of things and more into uh, the gun-toting populist side of things. And what do you think the effect will be of that? Do you think that the populist wing of that coalition will will become uh, more important over time?
1: Within the conservative movement, there there was this great uh, fracture because of the trumpeting, right? I mean, the the national reviews uh, against Trump, you know, purple uh, uh, issue and, and, you know, because kind of like the last gasp of uh, the last big Buckley-era pushback against the Trump phenomenon, and it was a total disaster. And you still have a few kind of holders on. The Lincoln Project, I I think they're kind of a particularly— kind of unique of, of just, you know, political hacks, you know, trying to uh, uh, you know get a whole bunch of money from, you know, uh, uh, very motivated Democratic donors. And so, you know, they're kind of a different game. But you, can, you still have like the Jonah Goldbergs and others that, you know, they still think that Trump's style is, you know, it, you know it's the aesthetic itself is uh, against you know the conservatism that, that you know they claim to believe, and the problem is the conservatism they they claim to believe in never really worked. You know the you know the you know, Buckley project. I mean, for the most part, it, it succeeded to the extent that it per- pushed a lot of people like Murray Rothbard, uh, you know, like Paul Gottfried, out of the the establishment conservative intellectual class, and kind of created you know it, you know was was great at protecting their own turf. But in terms of a political movement, it was, you know, that was the conservatism that was dying out now, um, you know, that, that, had, that had given us the, the Mitt Romneys of the world. And I think it's changing with, you know, Trump owning the lives, you know, like, because at least he's, he's winning, right? <laughs> That's the whole thing. He's like, you know, you know, his style might not be great, but here he actually, I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible that, I mean, Trump's legislative victories for the conservative movement, you know, support Supreme Court justices, you know, massive deregulation, got the tax thing through, you know, abortion advocate, anti-abortion advocate, you know, he's, you know, out there at March of Life events in ways that, you know, no other president, you know, Republican president ever had been. You know, how much of this stuff, like Trump, you know, is Trump really motivated by constitutional originalism? I don't think so, but he recognized that hey, here's the base of the people that put him in the office. He's delivering for them, um, you know, and that's it's it's worked. And and I think that going forward, it's it, you know being able to you know not try to intellectually engage with opponents that aren't interested in a real conversation, um, you know, that's that's I think a, one of the big ramifications here it, because instead of trying to win over. Uh, oh we're going to we're going to win an intellectual battle with the, the New York Times opinion page um, no like we're going we're going to create our new outlets we're, we're going to create different institutions because trying to win the respect of a, a certain you know cocktail party crowds is, is not going to work out for us it's it's always been a losing battle and, and so I think that, you know, I, at the, I you know, Buckley rights uh, uh, the, the Buckley Wright slogan, you know, the mantra of, of American conservatism, you're standing a thought history yelling stop um, when no one else will. Like, I mean, that's you know, simply yelling stop is, is you know, it didn't work. Um, meanwhile, if you have people like McCloskey's willing to take up arms and uh, uh, to pretend they you know, to defend their property rights when people are, are infringing upon it, that has a much more effective message, and I think that that's the 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 right accepting that the political norms that uh, you know recognizing the breakdown of political norms and willing to play the game appropriately, um, you know that that it was an important step forward for you know right and wrong. Because there's, there's plenty of again plenty of of policy prescriptions there that are 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 you know very not uh, libertarian in nature. And, you know, I think libertarians also, you know, there's a lot here for us to gain and learn from as well so that we can have success in the future. But, you know, being able to actually add a little bit of teeth and, and not play a losing and rigged game is, a. I think, one of the, the, the important lessons for this this Trump era. And I think that, again, you know, when when, when we polarization of America is mean, one of the, the, the constant themes, and I think that's something that we're all recognizing. You know, when you start having both sides build up their own institutions rather than compete for the same ones, I think that, that this just keeps kind of lending itself to this larger sense of, of disunity um, that, you know, trying to crack down and, and impose, you know, pushing things back into an order, of, of like a unified order, is, is going to, you know, is... is as it exists now, is not going to work out well. I I think that this is a natural byproduct of just very severe fundamental disagreements in underlying sense of of morality and ethics and and worldviews um, that cannot be reconciled by uh, union, that can only be reconciled, they they are better left alone and able to stand alone. And again, the more that the, the political right recognizes that, you know, there's, this is not a conversation that can be won. It's not an intellectual debate can be won. It's better to, to simply, you know, stop caring about the opinions of the New York Times, of, of the Democrats, of whatever. Um, the better off you know, that any political ideology is going to win when, we, when you start recognizing the world as it is. And I think that it's a, the, the ramifications that has on, on the, the American project, you know, as it continues to play out, will be very interesting.
0: Well, I think uh, it would be altogether suitable to uh, finish this discussion on that note of pro-secessionism and uh, <laughs> really wrap things up until uh, the election is over and uh, we know what's going on and we can return to some of those issues and, and uh, see if uh, things are working out for the Trump coalition or what we think things will look like uh, from 2024 going forward. But this will be our, our last one before Election Day, and uh, we'll be back afterward uh, probably to, uh, to have a look at uh, what happens on Tuesday. But uh, until then, thank you very much for listening to Radio Rothbard. Have a wonderful week.